Hi everyone. Thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we talked about how the sons of Magnus Barefoot managed to rule Norway together, even though Denmark and Sweden were engulfed in costly and bloody civil wars over who was to rule those kingdoms, Norway had peace for over 20 years while Sigurd the Crusader and his brother Eystein split the throne between them. But unfortunately for the 12th century Norwegians, it was not to last. This week, we'll see Norway going down the same path of internal fighting that Denmark and Sweden already had. Fair warning, it will get pretty grim at times. As I mentioned last time, it all began when a guy called Harald showed up at King Sigurd the Crusader's court and claimed that he was the king's half-brother, who had been brought up in the British Isles. Sigurd recognized the validity of Harald's claim after his supposed half-brother had gone through a trial by ordeal and promised not to usurp either Sigurd or his son Magnus. Soon after that matter had been settled, Sigurd the Crusader died, content to know that the succession was secured and that domestic peace would be preserved under the rule of his son. Episode 37, The Blind, the Loud, and the Hunchback. So to begin with, the Middle Ages had started off peacefully enough for the Norwegians. Magnus Barefoot's sons had run the country pretty successfully for decades, and as civil wars raged on in Denmark and Sweden, domestic tranquility had been preserved in Norway. But that changed in the year 1130. The death of Sigurd the Crusader kicked off a civil war that made fighting in Denmark and Sweden pale in comparison. The Norwegians would continue fighting for more than a century over who was to rule the country. Not that they were fighting continuously for over a hundred years, the conflict died down from time to time, only to flare up again with renewed force. With time, two distinct sides developed, virtually guaranteeing that the strife would become a self-playing piano and continue from generation to generation, with the two sides no longer fighting for any particular pretender, but just trying to keep the other side away from power. So without any further ado, let's get into it. As I mentioned already last time, Magnus, King Sigurd the Crusader's illegitimate son, hated his newly acquired uncle Harald. Magnus was suspicious of Harald's intention and did nothing, or at least precious little, to hide how he felt about him. But other people didn't seem to mind Harald that much. He was both charismatic and generous, two of the most important character traits a Scandinavian leader should have at this time. On top of that, he was also humble and didn't make a big deal about his royal blood. Someone who did make a big deal about his connection to the royal family was Magnus. He was arrogant, spoiled, and acted entitled. Not exactly the most attractive combination of characteristics. When his father died, Magnus was declared king in Oslo. Since he thought that that was it, and that he was now the unchallenged king of Norway, he didn't immediately take any further steps to ensure that the rest of the country would formally recognize what Magnus perceived to be his indisputable right. But Uncle Harald had other plans. When he heard that Sigurd the Crusader had died, Harald had himself declared king in Tunsberg. For those of you whose knowledge of Norwegian geography is a little spotty, I can tell you that Tunsberg is situated some 90 kilometers south of Oslo on the western shore of the outer Oslo fjord. So now Norway was back to having two kings. But maybe you, just like Magnus, want to protest. 
Harald had explicitly promised Sigurd the Crusader that he would not do what he had just done. He would not try to become king as long as Sigurd or Magnus were still alive. And Magnus was very much still alive. Harald brushed such objections aside, saying that his promise to Sigurd didn't count because he'd been forced to make it under duress. Magnus wasn't convinced by this line of argument, and he wanted to set out to Tunsberg and crush his insolent uncle, who probably wasn't his real uncle anyway, who had dared to overstep and claim parts of Magnus's royal inheritance. Unfortunately for Magnus, the people around him didn't share his enthusiasm for a military solution to the problem. Also, unlike Magnus, Harald was popular, and a lot of people were flocking to his cause. They were willing to go along with believing that he was indeed the son of Magnus Barefoot simply because they preferred him over the insufferable Magnus. After seven tense days, Magnus had to concede that he wouldn't be able to crush Harald, and so he agreed to compromise. They would be co-kings of Norway, but Magnus insisted that he would inherit all of his father's ships, silver, tablecloths and other earthly belongings. Harald agreed, and for three years they ruled together in an uneasy state of, if not peace, then at least tolerance of each other. But in the end, Magnus just couldn't live with the fact that he had to share the throne with his usurper uncle, and so he started to prepare for war to get rid of Harald once and for all. The thing with preparations for war, though, is that it can be tricky to keep secret, and Harald soon caught wind about what Magnus was up to. Naturally, he responded by starting to gather an army of his own. The two sides met at the Battle of Fairlev, in what today is western Sweden, on August 9th, 1134. Magnus and his superior army won a decisive victory, and Harald had to flee for his life. He managed to escape, though, and took refuge in Denmark. There, he received a warm welcome from King Niels, since Harald's opponent in Norway, Magnus, was married to the daughter of the recently murdered Knut Lavard, that is, the second Saint Knut for those of you keeping score at home and so he was supporting King Niels' opponent in the ongoing Danish civil war. Your enemy's enemy and all that. Meanwhile, back home in Norway, King Magnus was pleased with himself. he just dealt a mighty blow to his opponent, and now he was finally the uncontested king of Norway. It was time to celebrate. Even though his advisors kept telling him that the war wasn't actually over as long as Harald was still alive, and that it would be a really bad idea to let his guard down, at this point, Magnus decided to disband his army and send everybody home. He only took a small retinue of loyal men and set off for Bergen, where he planned to spend the winter. Magnus probably should have listened to his advisors, because Harald was far from beaten, and he wasn't even going to wait for spring to prove it. The Danish king had been generous enough to provide Harald with a fleet to try and take out his rival, and Magnus had hardly had time to send his army away and to settle into his winter quarters in Bergen before he heard that Harald had returned to Norway and that he was sailing along the coast, gathering support and soldiers for his upcoming attack on Magnus. Since Harald was a nice guy, whom everybody liked, and Magnus was not, Harald met little resistance on his way westward along the coast. He approached Bergen just in time for Christmas Eve 1134, and by then his army had grown substantially. But even though the city was basically defenseless, since Magnus had neglected to fortify it properly, Harald halted outside. Attacking immediately would have given him an easy win, but it would also have been a violation of the Christmas peace that already had been declared. For the whole period of Christmas, violence was forbidden, 
and going to war at this time of year would have been a crime against God and the church. Harald knew this and decided to bide his time and spent the holiday encamped outside Bergen. Only at this point did it actually sink in for Magnus that he was in deep trouble. He gave orders to hurriedly prepare the city's defenses as best they could. He also made sure that the harbour was blocked with logs and chains so that no ships could enter. And then he spent the holiday waiting for the attack he knew was coming. In January 1135, as soon as the Christmas period was over after, after Epiphany, Harold set his army in motion. At this point, Magnus didn't really stand much of a chance, but due to one last mistake, he made sure he wouldn't manage to repel the attack. Magnus just assumed that Harold would attack from the most obvious direction and concentrated all his best forces there. So when Harald snuck up from behind, the defenders of Bergen realized that they were going to lose and so they started to desert in droves. Even Magnus realized that his cause was hopeless, so he tried to get away on a ship that was waiting for him in the harbor. But his ship got stuck in the same blockade he himself has made sure to set up to bar Harald from entering, and so Magnus was caught. Harald wanted to make sure that Magnus or any potential descendants of his would never pose a threat to him ever again. But he couldn't really execute him, since killing a king had become rather big deal by this time. So instead, he ordered that Magnus be blinded and castrated. As a kicker, he also ordered one of his feet to be chopped off. This may not have amounted to regicide, but the treatment was still considered below the dignity of free men, so slaves were ordered to do the dirty work. Magnus, who for obvious reasons from now on would be known as Magnus the Blind, was shipped off to a monastery on an island in the Trondheim Fjord. There, he was supposed to spend the rest of his life in isolation as a monk, far away from any political goings-on in Norway. When that unpleasant business was taken care of, Harald settled in to rule Norway as its sole uncontested king. But then, almost exactly ten years after Harald had shown up at King Sigurd the Crusader's court, claiming to be the son of Magnus Barefoot, a guy called Sigurd shows up, a herald's court in Bergen, claiming to be his brother, yet another hitherto unknown son of Magnus Barefoot. Sigurd explained that he hadn't known about his royal lineage and had become a deacon. Only when his mother was on her deathbed had she revealed to him who his father really was. When he heard this, Sigurd had abandoned his ecclesiastical career, which he apparently wasn't particularly well suited for anyway, since he was a bit of a loudmouth. He was even nicknamed... Sigurd the Loud. Harald demanded a trial by ordeal for Sigurd to prove his lineage, but Sigurd declined, insisting that he'd already gone through a trial by ordeal in Denmark. No fewer than five Danish bishops had witnessed him walk over smoldering iron without it harming his feet. Unfortunately, none of these bishops were present in Norway to back up Sigurd's claim. Perhaps unsurprisingly, that wasn't good enough for King Harald. He suspected that Sigurd was up to something, quite possibly the same thing he himself had been up to a decade earlier, and that there was more than an average risk of him ending up like Magnus the Blind if he didn't put a stop to this at once. So he decided to kill this new pretender. He ordered some of his men to take care of it, but they botched the mission, and Sigurd managed to escape and started to gather support for a rebellion against King Harald. It wasn't too difficult to find people willing to join him. Many of Harald's soldiers had begun their careers serving Magnus, or even his father, Sigurd the Crusader, and they were happy to conspire against the usurper who had treated their previous king so cruelly. On the night of December 13th, 1136, 
When King Harold was looking forward to some quality time with his mistress, Sigurd and some other men barged in and killed him in bed. The following morning, when the queen, or rather dowager queen at this point, woke up and heard what had happened, she realized that she needed to act fast if she wanted to try to salvage the situation. She sent out delegations to various things with a mission to convince the Norwegians to elect Harald's two young sons to be his heirs and co-kings of Norway. The Dowager Queen herself set off east, leading a delegation headed for Oslo. She went to convince the people there to elect her own son, the one-year-old Inge, who happened to be Harald's only son within wedlock, one of these co-kings. On that same morning, her husband's killer, Sigurd, made a solemn declaration to the people of Bergen. He announced that King Harald was dead. It pained him to let them know that it was Sigurd himself who had done it. It had brought him no joy, but he had no choice in the matter, etc., etc., yada, yada, yada. But on the bright side of things, they needn't worry about the future. Since he also was the son of Magnus Barefoot, he would now take up his dead brother's fallen mantle and rule Norway. I'm not sure exactly what Sigurd thought he would achieve by this proclamation, but it wasn't well received. To put it mildly, the people in Bergen didn't want a king guilty of regicide, or fratricide for that matter. Sigurd had to flee to avoid the wrath of his would-be subjects. Things hadn't gone as smoothly as he'd hoped, but that didn't mean that Sigurd was ready to throw in the towel just yet. People didn't think that he had a good enough claim to the throne. Fine. He knew someone who did. So he brought Magnus the Blind back from his monastic isolation in Trondheim and made him his co-king. Magnus accepted the offer, either because it was the best offer he was likely to ever get again, or because he was genuinely happy to share power with a man who'd killed the guy responsible for his own blinding and castration. Sigurd the Loud and Magnus the Blind decided to split up their forces and Magnus the Blind headed for eastern Norway where he had the most popular support. Eastern Norway may have been the part of the country where Magnus the Blind had the most support, but he wasn't the only one with support in that region. In the summer of 1137, he met King Inge, the murdered Harald's son, in battle at Minne, some 70 kilometers north of Oslo, at the southern end of Lake Mjösa. And when I say that Magnus met Inge in battle, I obviously don't mean that literally, since Magnus was blind and missing a foot, and Inge was only a toddler. But Magnus's army was defeated, and Magnus had to flee and take refuge abroad, first in the land of the Geats, and later in Denmark. The young king Inge would probably have considered this day a very happy one, if it hadn't been for the fact that he had been brought onto the battlefield, carried in a sack by one of his guards. Apparently, the guard didn't do a very good job at keeping the young king safe, because when the battle was over and the boy emerged from the sack, his leg and back were so badly injured that he would be an invalid for the rest of his life. He was given the nickname Inge the Hunchback, and he could never again walk unaided, but at least he was still alive and king. But Magnus the Blind and his co-king, Sigurd the Loud, also remained alive. They spent the following years in Denmark, only popping over to Norway for campaigns here and there, pillaging and robbing. If you ask me, that's perhaps not the optimal way to convince a population that you should be their king, but what do I know? They had to do something, and since they weren't strong enough to meet King Inge the Hunchback in open battle, this might have been the next best thing. Even though they tried to avoid it, eventually, 
in the year 1139, King Inge, or at least his army, caught up with the raiding co-kings Sigurd the Loud and Magnus the Blind. Sigurd and Magnus had brought some 30 ships with them from Denmark, and their army consisted of Danes and Norwegians. King Inge the Hunchback and his co-king set out to meet them, and the final battle took place on November 12, 1139 at Holmengro, at sea south of the Oslo Fjord. The boy kings only had 20 ships, but their ships were bigger. At the beginning of the battle, the Danes got cold feet and took their 18 ships and sailed back to Denmark. Now all of a sudden, the boy kings not only had the bigger ships, but also the larger fleet. Sigurd the Loud and Magnus the Blind didn't stand a chance. Everyone on their ships was butchered by their opponents. In an attempt to try and get away, a loyal guard picked up Magnus the Blind and was just about to jump onto another ship and escape. But as he was going to take the leap, someone threw a spear at his back, skewering both him and the crippled king he was carrying, killing both. Sigurd was still alive and fighting bravely, albeit increasingly desperately. When he was the only man still alive on his ship, he pulled the same trick as Olav Tryggvason had done at the Battle of Svalder in the year 1000. That is, he jumped off the ship into the water and disappeared. But unlike Olav Tryggvason, Sigurd managed to survive, and he hid under his shield that was floating on the water. No doubt, Sigurd was hoping to sneak away as soon as darkness would fall. There was so much debris in the water that he might have gotten away with it. But after the battle, as the winners were rowing about, killing off the last injured enemies in the water, one of them asked for his life to be spared because he could point out where Sigurd the Loud was hiding. Sigurd was grabbed and dragged up on land, where he was tortured. A lot of people had bones to pick with him, and they decided to pick his. First, they crushed his arms and legs. Then, only then, they ripped his clothes off. They wanted to skin him alive, so they cut up the skin on his head, but he was bleeding so profusely that they didn't manage to get a good grip on the skin. So instead, they whipped him until it looked like he'd been skinned. To finish him off, they brought up a log and broke his back with it, and then they hung him from a tree. After that, they cut his head off. Sometime during all of this, fairly early on I hope, Sigurd the Loud died. As much as the people who killed him hated him, they all agreed that he had conducted himself very honorably at the end, not squealing or crying, but just chanting hymns. When that was all done, Norwegians hoped that they would finally get some peace and quiet. It's true that they still had two kings, but they were just children, and the boys had the same advisors and counselors, so the risk of two rival power centers developing was minimal, and so the risk for a continuation of the civil war also seemed low. But just as everyone was about to let out a big collective sigh of relief, it was Civil War Groundhog Day. Some stranger called Aistane showed up, claiming to be the son of King Harold, born in Scotland. That would make him the half-brother of the two boy kings, and he demanded that he'd be elevated to the status of king just like them. His claim was actually accepted because it was widely known in Norway that Harold had in fact fathered a son in Scotland, even though no one knew exactly what the boy looked like or what his name was. So Aistane was proclaimed co-king with his two younger half-brothers, and Norway once again had no fewer than three kings. Despite this, the country experienced a few years of peace. It was at this time, more specifically in the year 1152, that the Archdiocese of Nidaros was established. We talked about the when and whys in episode 33, Church and State, so I'm not going to elaborate further on that topic here and now. 
Part of the reason for the peace was that Eystein spent a large chunk of this time campaigning in Scotland, as if the Viking Age hadn't ended a long time ago. As I just mentioned, it also helped that the two other kings were children and that they shared one set of advisors. But this period of peace was only a temporary break. The civil war was soon on again. Things started to go seriously wrong when the boy kings grew up. When the men who had advised them and ruled the country in their names started to die, they were replaced, but unfortunately each boy king found a replacement of his own, thus over time creating two separate courts. Worse still, they also started to recruit separate armies, without any common commander. Eystein, who was older than his half-brothers, watched this development and decided to exploit it. He made a secret pact behind the back of Inga the Hunchback, together with a third brother. Their plan was to divide the country between them and squeeze Inga the Hunchback out of the triumvirate. The plan wasn't to kill him, no no, they would only forcibly retire him to an estate somewhere where he would no longer be involved in the running of the kingdom. They called for a meeting of the three kings at the thing in Bergen the following summer, in 1155, where they planned to spring the trap for Inge. But Inge the Hunchback caught wind of the plan, so when he went to Bergen that summer, he brought with him a large retinue of soldiers. He arrived first and was soon joined by his younger brother. Eystein was late, but Inge insisted that they should start the thing anyway. At the thing, Inge revealed the plot against him, and the gathered people were appalled. But his brother denied everything, claiming Inge's advisors had made up the story. Tension rose in the following days, and soldiers loyal with the two kings got into sporadic fights in the city. A few of them were even killed, and everything seemed ready to blow up at any moment. Inge the Hunchback hesitated and didn't want to start open war against his brother, but in the end his mother, Dowager Queen Ingrid, goaded him into action. Inge attacked his half-brother as he was at a farm outside the city. When the attacked brother came out of the house to give up, he was cut down. At that point, Eystein finally arrived in Bergen. When he learned what had happened and that the plan to get rid of Inge the Hunchback had backfired, Eystein sensibly decided to stay in his ship outside the city he sent emissaries to Inge to try and work something out. Eystein was lucky that Inge the Hunchback didn't have an appetite for any more war, and instead he agreed to a peace deal. They decided to remain co-kings and went their separate ways. But it didn't last. I mean, of course it didn't. There was too much bad blood between the two co-kings, and they kept fighting each other indirectly, attacking each other's friends and allies. It went on for a few years, until it escalated to the point where Eystein was caught in an ambush by Inge's men. Eystein prayed a short prayer and lay down on the ground, where he was cut down. After his death, his allies started to spread rumours that miracles happened at his gravesite. This worried King Inge the Hunchback. After all, this was exactly how the road to canonization started, and it was never a good look to be on the side of those who had killed a saint. So in order to stop King Eystein from ever becoming Saint Eystein, Inge ordered his men to boil a dog and pour the concoction out over Eystein's grave, because that was apparently a recognized way to put an end to saints in the making. And it worked. People stopped reporting miracles performed by the late King Eystein. Now, in the year 1157, Inge the Hunchback was the only remaining king of Norway. But, as I'm sure you realize, he wouldn't be for long. After all, I already told you that this business would go on for over a century, and it's hardly even been 30 years yet. The people who'd supported Eystein 
weren't ready to accept that Inge the Hunchback was now the only king of Norway. Not only, or perhaps even primarily, because they were sore losers, but because they were afraid that their own positions, power and possessions, were in danger when they found themselves removed from the inner circle of power. So they set out to find someone else who could rival King Inge and guard their interests. The choice fell on a boy in eastern Norway called Håkon, who was only 10 years old at the time. Håkon had lived a quiet life out of the limelight so far, since he wasn't the legitimate son of a queen or even an established royal mistress. No, his mother had been a fling, or perhaps even the victim of rape, when one of Inge's opponent kings had passed through eastern Norway and spent a night at the farm where she was a servant girl. The king had moved on and probably forgotten all about her, but when the time came for her to give birth, the head of the household took care of the boy and raised him as a member of his own family, but making sure everyone knew that he was the son of a king. No doubt, the boy was seen as a stepping stone to a life of power and money for the man who raised him. And now was the time to cash in. In the year 1157, Håkon, who was called Håkon the Broad-Shouldered, either because he had remarkably broad shoulders, or because he was surrounded by people who understood the value of good PR, was declared heir to his half-uncle, Eystein. All of Inge the Hunchback's opponents and enemies rallied behind him, opening a new chapter in the story of the Norwegian Civil War. The following year, 1158, the fighting picked up in earnest, and the two sides met in several battles, but none that was conclusive or interesting enough to waste time on here. Håkon didn't have any particular success, but he managed to stay alive and escape captured by King Inge's men. There was also infighting within both camps, and when they weren't killing their opponents, they were busy killing each other. This depressing pattern repeated itself for years, until the year 1161. That winter was particularly cold, and there was even ice on the Oslo Fjord. Despite the weather, the war was still going on, no spending of the winter in camp avoiding the cold. On February 3rd, 1161, the two sides drew near each other, and King Inge the Hunchback decided it was time to deal this upstart Håkon a decisive blow. He ordered his men to get into battle formation on the ice of the frozen Oslo Fjord, and even decided that he was going to participate in the battle personally. It's a bit unclear what he thought he was going to prove by being there in person, considering the fact that he could in- couldn't even walk, but he was the king, so he got his way. At dawn on February 4th, Håkon and his army drew near. As they did, a large portion of King Inge's soldiers defected to Håkon's side. Inge the Hunchback obviously realized that this wasn't a good sign, but he decided to stand and fight. He was the king, after all. He wasn't going to run. That was incredibly brave, but also incredibly stupid. Inge the Hunchback was defeated and killed, and his forces were scattered. Håkon the Broad-Shouldered was now king of Norway. Inge's most prominent allies fled or went into hiding to avoid the vengeance of the victor. Most of them managed to escape with their lives, and eventually they rallied behind one of Inge's advisors, a nobleman called Erling Skakke. Skakke means crooked neck, and he was called that because he'd taken a cut to the neck once in battle, and the wound hadn't healed properly, putting his head on a permanent tilt. To gather additional money and resources for the continued war against Harald the Broad-Shouldered, Erling Skakke went to Denmark to try and win the support of the Danish king. The trip was a success inasmuch as the king of Denmark did agree to help, but the assistance came with a steep price. 
he demanded that Viken, the Oslofjord region in eastern Norway, be handed over to the Danish king once Erling Skakke had won the war. Erling Skakke didn't like it, but he had no choice but to accept. He agreed to the terms and went back home to Norway to continue the war. Already the following summer, Skakke's fleet met King Håkon the Broad-Shouldered in what was to become the last battle in this round of the Civil War. The two fleets met on July 7th, 1162 in a fjord along the coast between Bergen and Trondheim. Thanks to his Danish support, Erling Skakke soon got the upper hand, and when King Håkon understood that the battle was lost, he decided to flee. So he jumped from his ship to another one, hoping to be able to steer it away from the battle and to continue the war, or at least his life. But Håkon probably should have paid more attention to where he jumped, because without realizing it, he had jumped straight into an enemy ship. The young king, he was only 15 at the time, was seized and killed, giving Erling Skakke the victory. So Erling Skakke had won the battle and the war, but that didn't mean that his troubles were over. He still had to pay the Danes, and he was far from certain that his fellow Norwegians would accept the price he'd agreed to. Even more importantly, he may have ousted Håkon the broad-shouldered, but whom would he put on the vacant throne in his place? Don't misunderstand me, Erling Skakke was definitely set on ruling Norway from now on, but he couldn't very well do so in his own name. He wasn't of royal stock. He needed a puppet through whom he could run the show. The question was, who? But I think we've had just about enough of civil strife, fratricide and power struggle as we can handle for now. We'll leave it here for today and return to Erling Skakke's solution next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.